rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Uh, This is Bob Hutchins. Today, I'm talking uh, using this newfangled technology to talk across the Atlantic (laughs) and the Caribbean to connect with my friend uh, Carlos Rodriguez. (laughs) Carlos is in Puerto Rico, and he is a pastor. He's an activist. He's a communicator. Uh, and some would call him a provocative preacher. He's the CEO of a happy NPO oh, and the author of Simply Sonship, Drop the Stones, and the upcoming Proximity. He, he and his wife, Catherine, they have three gorgeous children. They live in Puerto Rico now. They've recently moved there, and they are involved in relief efforts there in Puerto Rico and all over the Caribbean, post-Hurricane Irma and Maria. That's um, right. And uh, you can read about him at happygivers.com, happysonship.com, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But Carlos, thank you for taking the time and, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for making the time for me and connecting. And yeah, I'm looking forward to it, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you're in Puerto Rico, and as you and I have talked offline before we started— we have that in common. Uh, when I was <laughs> so young, great. I spent a few years in Puerto Rico. My dad worked for uh, the government, so we moved around a bit. Before we moved to Miami, uh, I spent some very formative years in Puerto Rico and San Juan and Isla Verde there area there. And That's so great. have very, I mean, very I, I, fond memories. Of course you do. It's Puerto Rico. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> should come and make new fun memories. You should come back. I, man, I would love it. And actually, if we get to know each other better, you just give me the invitation and I'll be there. Well, that's it. I'm <laughs> telling you. So one of the reasons why we're in Puerto Rico is to host people. We, After Hurricane Maria, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's what we do. My wife and I, with our kids and our team, we host teams every single month. We welcome teams from the States, from Canada. We had a team from England. Um, and we're doing reconstruction all through the mountains, uh, mostly for elderly people and single moms. So, but the experience is so good. Like I was so concerned at the beginning, like I want to make sure people have a good experience. It's not just like, you know, it's just not work, but even through the work, the families cook for us, random neighbors start playing music. Uh, you know, we end up meeting all these people. They take us to the beach. They take us to these kind of like, you know, only local no spots. And we end up having an amazing time. So yeah, I'm hosting people and you can be one of those people for sure. You awesome. and your whole family. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I tucked them back uh, a few years ago and showed them uh, the old neighborhood and, and took them around and they loved it. And I I know, sadly, in a lot of ways, and it's one of the reasons you're there, um, the landscape and what's going on has changed quite a bit in the past uh, couple of years because of the hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, even even before the hurricanes, to be honest with you, um, Puerto Rico, since because we had the economic crisis in 2008, it affected all of the U.S., Puerto Rico being part you know, of America was really affected, but we really didn't have a recovery. So in a really bizarre way, Maria and Irma 
the hurricanes exposed what was already really bad and, of mm. course, made it even worse. So there was a lot of need. Um, there was a lot of things, both local government, municipalities, towns, um, culturally. There's a lot of conversations that we can have about Puerto Rico. But um, at the same time, in the midst of desperation and pain and loss and so many people leaving the island, it's full of opportunity and new things and hope and music and creativity. So I feel like it's an exciting time to be here, really. Well, before we get more into the details, because I do want to talk about your work in Puerto Rico and what's going on. Mm -hmm. But before we do, let's back up and talk sure. about you haven't always been in Puerto Rico. Uh, I know you may be originally from there and you've recently mm -hmm. moved back, but you were in the States for a long time, right? Yeah. So I did. I did about two years in Lakeland, Florida when I was younger. My parents separated and my grandparents from my mom's side were living in Florida. That's where I learned my English and kind of learn a bit of the American culture, save by the bell type experience, you know. <laughs> uh, that's, I, I would have credited half of my English to that show. Um, and then I, we went back to Puerto Rico. My parents got back together. It's this whole beautiful, complicated journey. But then we, my wife and I, um, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. um, so after four years in Toronto, Canada, where I did ministry school, got ordained and do all that jazz, I went to Raleigh, North Carolina to plant a church um, with a group of friends. And we were there for 10 years before moving here to PR. Got it. Got it. And um, I know your journey of faith and your you know, upbringing, uh, I'm assuming uh, it, from following you and reading some of mm -hmm. your, your blogs and listening to you on other podcasts, it, did you come from more of a, I guess, charismatic evangelical background? Um, I came from an everything background. I had like the multiple experiences. I, I grew up in a Catholic family, went to Catholic school as a young, as a young boy. Uh, but then I had the classic evangelical salvation experience, Billy Graham crusade in 95 here in Puerto Rico. Wow. Uh, I was one of those people that walked up to the front, had a legitimate, you know, encounter revelation transformation. I've never looked back since that day. I started going to church. It was more of a charismatic church. Um, but I went to a Southern Baptist school, then high school, um, and I, I, my girlfriend was Catholic, charismatic Catholic, which was a great combination. Um, so I've, I've been exposed to a lot of things. Ended up in Toronto, which is very charismatic type um, experience in the um, late '90s, early 2000s. Um, so, but but I grew up in I grew up in a family that created this sense of we all belong in the midst of a mm. lot of pain, disappointment in the midst of, you know, uh, separation. Both of my parents are in their second marriages, but we were raised to never call our sisters half sisters. You know, uh, my dad's ex-wife, I call her mom. It's kind of this weird but beautiful invitation that we all belong together no matter what's happening. We're all part of the Rodriguez family. So, you know, credit to my parents for, for instilling that so deep in me that I never, as a Christian then, involved in different kind of denominations, churches, experiences. It's like, no matter what, we all belong to the, to the family. We can, we all have a place at the table. And so that, that made me less hesitant to try different churches, different read, you know, books, different what people say, no, you couldn't read that guy. He doesn't have the right revelation. I'm like, Oh, that's precisely the guy I need to read. Or, you know, that lady, <laughs> she shouldn't even be preaching. Oh, that's the lady I want to be my pastor now. And so <laughs> That was kind of the invitation in my heart, really, and still for my family's culture. Now, did you always 
were you always uh, uh, that way, meaning um, very open and inclusive? Was that always the way that, that, that you have been? Because if so, that's pretty unique. Most of us have been brought up in very structured environments where, you know, we were taught and, and led to believe a certain way and didn't mm. weren't really allowed to go too far out of those bounds. Uh, and if mm. you did... Um, mm. Then you were either a heretic or you were being led astray by evil, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Was that your experience as well or not? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's elements of that. Even in the most inclusive spaces, if you're not inclusive, then you're not part of the space. So yeah, human, human nature, nature, human nature, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eventually, I know what's good and what's evil. Right. right. And I will draw the lines and my lines might be bigger and my boxes might be more spacious, but it's still a box. So and in and, and all those spaces, there's always an invitation to exclude and, uh, you know, to set at least some some measure of wisdom, quote unquote, boundary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, I would say more open than others. Um, and I don't know, just on the inside, never felt like there was any even any reason. I, I thought that was the whole point that to me, different denominations were almost like God's grace, like different people will consume this differently. So let's serve different meals. You know, you don't like Thai food. Well, let me make you some Puerto Rican food or it never from, from, I guess from a uh, maybe ignorant perspective, it was never like these are right. And these are wrong as these are different for a purpose. Mm. Uh, so I guess that's how I saw it. That's great. That's great. So, so as you move forward, um, in in your life and in your faith, and um, I'm assuming you got married, and then mm-hmm. as you progressed, talk to me about how, you know, Happy Sonship and Happy Givers, how did that come about, and what was that birthed out of? Well, to be honest with you, I had a, a, a legitimate faith crisis. Um, I found myself being the lead pastor of this growing church in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was being successful. I'm writing my first book. I'm getting invitations to preach on that book. I'm flying to Europe, I'm flying all over the States, and, you know, as ministry is going up, up, marriage is going down, 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 and my fathering is not the number one thing, and, you know, I'm not sleeping around with other women, but the church really is my mistress, and I'm not really, you know, I'm not being physically abusive with my wife, but threatening to be, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. punching holes in the wall, and I'm being all like... You know, I'm just creating this horrific atmosphere in my own home. And then, of course, we got to put on the face to pretend um, when we go to church. So I was crossing all these lines and, and coming from a home where I did see abuse and in all sorts of ways. I was always like, well, comparatively, I'm not that bad. So everybody else get over it and let me do what God's called me to do. But really not being a good husband at all, not being a good pastor. I was building my own kingdom living for my own, you know, reward and pretending using language of family, which I found myself as a pastor using all this language of family and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, but really running a business that benefited mostly me. So I had a come to Jesus moment and another one and another one and another one. And I kept fighting them. And I just had, uh, it really was my wife that drew the line in the sand and said, we either things change or we're done. So in the midst of probably the highlight of my ministry, you know, early 30s, you know, kind of like the rising star of this charismatic movement, just 
came crashing down and I'm not a pastor anymore. I'm not invited anymore anywhere. I have to spend a year just going through counseling and ministry. And I guess in that, I don't guess, I know that in that journey of rediscovering myself, my weaknesses, what's really important, what really matters, um, how many blinders I, I had, once I started to legitimately repent, not just verbally, but, you know, different actions and and reactions, I just rediscovered Jesus that loved me despite of me and that, you know, would always accept me, but would challenge me to be different. And in the midst of that, I discovered that the system that I was creating to share about that Jesus was really not allowing me to find that Jesus. So as I'm coming back after that year of kind of recovery, um, it's like, okay, everything's different. And in that journey, writing was the way to process. So I started to write and that's where Happy Sonship came out of. And mostly questions, questioning myself, questioning things that I would preach in the past, questioning the system that I was part of. And, and I guess people resonated with that. So it grew dramatically and Eventually, I lost my job because of it, but we can get to that later. <laughs> well, well, talk to me about that. Why, why did you lose okay. your job? What, what, what did that? Uh, I think I know the yeah. answer because I know crashes yeah. and crises of faith produce yeah. uh, a lot of fruit. Uh, most yeah. of them good if we're open to it. Talk to me about Sweet. that. What happened? What, yeah, so, what came out of that? So, so that basically that was it. I'm coming out of we're coming together, my wife and I, out of this journey of restoration. And it's really good for us as a family, but we're realizing we don't we don't fit in this system. I, I would say the ten years in Raleigh was God deducing the deduction. It was almost like you thought you wanted this, but actually you don't. You thought you were good at this, but actually you're not. Um, you thought that you were called to this, but actually you're called to something else. Um, so it was like, no, 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 to find the real yes, you know, to discover our legitimate yes. Um, the thing that we are passionate about, we want to do. And it just, unfortunately, for the family that I was involved in, my church family, it was just too different. I guess it was it was fast too, you know, credit to them for standing with me as long as they did. But my journey just just took another route. And it was in the writing that I discovered there's this other audience of people who are disappointed, people who are feeling like me, people who are tired of the system, people who want to try something different. Um, and it's I mean, I'm talking millions of people um, coming to the blog and comments and and usually positive comments from atheists and LGBTQ kids who came out of the church and people who weren't pastors anymore and people who were burned out, very positive, like, my goodness, I, I needed to hear this and I, I want to be part of whatever you're doing. And then very negative comments from, you know, kind of people in the system that I was part of, a system that was really good for me in a sense, provided a salary, an opportunity, and it created a platform for me, which I was now using to challenge that system. I was trying my best to ask questions. I was trying my best to keep it without certainties. I was tired of proving all these certainties that I had in the past. So I'm asking questions. I'm saying a lot of maybes, but the maybes were problematic. So, you know, it was really painful. And eventually the church that I planted with my friends, we, we, we just had a parting of ways and, you know, love and credit to them for the journey that we had and so much that I learned with them. But, um, it's just, you know, in, in a way I became an outcast and, I would say that the Trump era really provided a really bizarre clarity. It's almost like the polarization. And again, maybe I'm, I'm being too optimist about this, but it's almost like everything between Hillary and Trump and between immigrants and non-immigrants. And it, in a way, 
all that polarization that we're seeing really made it clear where people stand on issues yes and stop being kind of like obscure maybe you're you have issues of racism maybe you have issues with this jesus maybe you really like x or y or z and and this this season i think if we look at the silver lining um there is an opportunity for definition there's clarity and going back to my family it's like okay at least i know now for sure where i stand on these 10 things and i know for sure that they are to me, essential things of the gospel, not just, you know, cultural conversations that I can write a blog about. No, these are things that I want to give my life for, for justice in Puerto Rico, for, you know, for the welcoming of immigrants and the stranger. And these are things that I care about, that I've experienced, that I, I feel like I have something to contribute to them. So anyways, all that rambled to say, um, I think it is beautiful that we now have clarity uh, about where we should move forward and what we shouldn't accept. And that was basically it. Yeah, that's great. That's wonderful. And 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 I love the way that you communicate. You're really gifted. I, I recently reposted one of your blogs, and I loved it. Uh, maybe you could talk about it a little bit and where it came out of was, um, it was a, a letter to my our conservative parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I wrote that. I actually wrote that maybe four years ago. Um, and I've just been editing (laughs) recording. I've been adjusting it and expanding on it. Um, yeah, it, it, it really, and that was, that was the key during that season, um, 2016, 2017. Um, I knew that most of my church leaders in the charismatic movement were very conservative, you know, had conversations with him in 2003 about Saddam Hussein being the Antichrist, and that's why we had to invade Iraq. You know, um, I've had those conversations <laughs> from a long time ago. But it was, and my 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 challenge to them was never you can't be conservative. Is don't spiritualize that to the extent that Trump is the trumpet of the Lord, and everybody who doesn't listen to the trumpet is missing out. You know, right. Um, we can have a conversation about being liberal, being progressive, the good, the bad, the ugly on both sides, uh, um, you know, but don't put it in a way that now those of us that are not clearly we're not for many reasons um, were excluded. And again, my demand was this demand that I internally have from my family is like we need to be part of the family. We need to somehow still be in conversation, still have a place at the table with each other. Um, but in order for me to speak to you, you can't start with, this is the will of the Lord and you're missing out from the will of the Lord. If you don't vote this way, you know? Yeah. So I was trying to have those honest conversations for the sake of staying at the table, not to be excluded from the table. Um, but you know, the different consequences of, you know, there's the reality of the money that comes in from people, who vote a certain way um, and go to a certain church expecting a certain, you know, um, and and in a way that was me at the beginning that I was the lead pastor. There's these expectations about who we need to pray for, the flags that we need to have on stage, the days that we need to celebrate, the people that we need to pray for. It, I, and I never fit into that. I tried to and I was miserable. And mm. when I stopped trying to, I felt free. And I was reaching an audience that I really cared about, the vulnerable, the broken, the oppressed. I started going into prisons. I started, you know, reaching into um, the inner city and kind of learning their stories, not just to be the savior, but actually to learn how to do it with them and to learn how to do family and church. So I found myself like not belonging anywhere and yet belonging to everybody. Um, And I'm still trying to walk that journey for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, I know that anytime you start um, talking about the least of these and you start talking about the red letters of Jesus, um, it's interesting how that begins to draw a line in the sand because Jesus, what Jesus said and what he did and how he lived, and specifically the Sermon on the Mount, um, just does not fit inside of a capitalistic evangelical American Christianity all the time. It butts mm-hmm. it butts up against it, and when you mm-hmm. butt when and when you butt up against that, you have to make a decision in your own life to say, "Am I going to follow what Jesus said, and am I going to choose that way, or am I going to proof text my stance by going everywhere else but besides what Jesus said?" And say, yeah, "Yeah, but uh, this is what the Old Testament says, or this is what Paul says, or this is what, (laughs) you know, don't you know Jesus turned over tables? So he was really mean. He was really mean and violent, and he was Mm -hmm. very judgmental like me. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's the one. That's the one. That's the one. Yeah, it's very bizarre to me. And um, what it comes down to is you have to come to the place in your faith to be comfortable enough to say, um, is if if the world and all of the scripture uh, is contrary to what Jesus is saying, then I'm going to go with Jesus. Um, yeah. And that's a that that sounds so simple and it sounds so elementary, but that's a very bold stand. Ironically, so do would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I found myself quoting Jesus without saying it was Jesus, just saying something he was said, and people complaining about it. Christians complain about like, or calling you <laughs> calling you a liberal or a social justice warrior. <laughs> I'm like, I literally just didn't write that this is Matthew 25, um, and and it, it it's really hard, right? Because I'm talking about friends, I'm talking about people I did life with, I'm talking about people that were really generous when we started doing stuff in Puerto Rico, that gave money towards the work in Puerto Rico. It's just this real con. I, I would say 30, 40 percent of the people I welcome here. Um, teams that are that are coming, uh, conservative people. I just a few weeks ago, I had a team, and you know, we had this long discussion about this guy. I mean, he's one hundred percent supporting Trump and everything that Trump is saying, and he's the trumpet of the Lord, et cetera, all that language. Um, and again, I'm, I'm happy to have those discussions, but like you're saying, there's there's a line that I've drawn, and and that's the blessing of this season is I'm standing with Jesus. I'm standing with what he said and not just with what he said, because you can grab anybody's words and turn them into what you want. I think one of the things I really like about Jesus was he's talking to these religious leaders who absolutely know scripture, you know, top to bottom, inside out. And he's challenging them not because they know scripture. He's challenging them because they're using scripture to only benefit themselves. They know how to find the verses to approve of their own internal theology as opposed to be transformed by what the verses are saying. So Jesus comes to bring so much clarity. He is what God has to say. I think he's not just what God had to say, but what God is still saying to this day, to this moment. Um, Jesus is what God is saying. Um, And what God is saying about immigrants and what he's saying about America and what he's saying about me personally. So I try my best in my writing and and my communication to start with me um, because I have my own issues. I have my own, you know. Uh, um, my own prejudice and my own uh, limitations and my own lines that I draw towards other people. And yes. I like to say that um, if I draw a line in the sand and I try to keep people out, Jesus goes to the other line, to the other side of the line, and he's always inviting me, come over here. 
Yeah, um, that's good. And he was so good at doing that with his disciples. You know, he's got Matthew, the tax collector, an employer of Rome, you know, the greatest traitor to the Jewish people. And he's got Simon the Selet, who's basically a freedom fighter against Romans. And he's making a way. While they're there, he's challenging them, right? It's not like, let's include everybody and let's hope Kumbaya, this gets better. No, while you're here, while you're included, I'm going to deal with your racism. I'm going to deal with your xenophobia and I'm going to deal with your hatreds towards X, Y, or Z. But you're welcome at the table so mm-hmm. that you can be transformed. I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want that journey for myself. And I feel like there's I, I have some measure of responsibility to invite other people to that journey and to continue focusing on Jesus, who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And hopefully that's where we're headed. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Before we get to your work in Puerto Rico, uh, talk to me a little bit about your writings and your books and what mm-hmm. what the subjects are and what you hope to accomplish with them. Well, my first book called Simply Sonship, really in my charismatic circles, there was a big emphasis on God as father. And I think there was a beautiful thing that happened in the 90s and 2000s that allowed for that language to be, I, I think it was necessary to start to visualize God, not just like a boss or a leader or a master, but actually a father. Um, that was really healing for me, especially coming from a broken background. It really helped me heal my relationship with my own father and be open to other fathers in my life. And of course, becoming a father myself. Um, there's no doubt that it, there was limitations to that language. Um, it was exclusive in a sense. And I found myself using all this language of like the father loves all, loves all, but it was really like, it was still really um, loves all that know this and act like this and sound like this. Um, So I wrote about it because it was really hitting for me. And then I wrote a second book called Drop the Stones, which was really a culmination of that whole journey um, and, and finding myself in the story of John 8, both being Jesus, the invitation for me to be Jesus, to not throw stones, but to destroy religious systems that want to destroy other people, Um, but also being the woman caught in the act of adultery and all the things that that I've failed and that I've missed, and also finding myself to being the religious leaders that wanting to throw stones at people for X, Y, or Z. So... It's a, you know, it's a, it was the funnest book I've ever written in terms, funnest thing I've ever written in different articles and, and things that I've done. And I loved it. And people have really resonated with it. I'm working on a third book called Proximity because this journey of moving to Puerto Rico has proven that to move forward in all these conversations that we're having, we need to go back to just coming close. Mm. Um, I, I can talk to people and I have the best stats about the, the, the problem with the prison system in America, X and, and this is wrong, this is bad. I can I can do a good sermon, but it's, there's nothing like bringing a person into a prison to to build a relationship, a legitimate friendship relationship with a prisoner who's serving two life sentences for murder, yeah. and just getting to see Jesus together and actually realizing yes. I'm not bringing Jesus to them, but that person is Jesus to me. Um, and, and bringing people in proximity like that has, I found to be the the most effective way of communicating the words and the style and the beauty of Christ, uh, more than just preaching. So, yeah, I've said this before on the podcast that, um, the, the greatest way to get rid of dualistic thinking or to think that your way is the only way that's right is to go Mm. and travel the world and also sit down with people and have relationships that are very, very different from you. Sure. Um, Father Richard Rohr says, I've heard him say several times, it's like, don't talk to me 
about your views on the immigrant or Mm -hmm. the liberal or Mm -hmm. the conservative or the straight or the gay or whatever, until you sat down across the table and had lunch or dinner with these people and genuinely looked into their eyes and have meaningful conversations. Then come and talk to me about your stance on them. Because nine times out of 10, the people we uh, try to uh, marginalize the most are usually the people that we have no relationships with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so again, I think it was Michelle Obama who said, I'm pretty sure she, I read it from her. It's harder to hate up close. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is, there is that element of when somebody's in, even in your home, the, the, the whole beautiful thing of hospitality, um, not just meeting them somewhere, you know, neutral, but like inviting them to your house right. um, and cooking them a meal, that, that, that element of proximity. And there is so much language for it in the new Testament, especially Jesus. I mean, he's all about food, and the main complaint from the religious leaders is that he sat and ate with sinners. So they call him a friend of sinners, a glutton and a drunkard, right? There's, he turns himself into the language of food. Like you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And, you know, there's this invitation to proximity, but not just proximity for the sake of one conversation, but proximity to share life experience, to share each other's humanity. So I'm hoping that, you know, I can, I can verbalize that in a way that it's helpful to people and, makes people invite each other. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, t- well, talk to me about your work in Puerto Rico. What is your, what does your day look like? What are you going to do today or this week? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm mostly preparing for the next team that's coming, right? So we have teams coming at least once a month. They come usually for a week. So in between, <clears throat> I'm connecting with government leaders. I'm connecting with other nonprofits. I'm connecting with the people on the ground, social workers who are, you know, have the the heartbeat and know where the most needy people are. And we've discovered that it's mostly single mothers and the elderly. Mm. Um, usually there are funds available or maybe there's an organization available, but there's just people that don't have the time, don't have a car, don't have the resources, don't know how to take the bus to get to the mayor's office to be able to, you know, to say, hey, I need help. Um, so we found ourselves finding people. Um, via neighbors that tell us and homes that we thought were abandoned and there's a whole family living in there. And and, and, and even just looking at a map and seeing where there's still blue tarps um, for roofing and finding to see if there's a family living there or wanting to go back to their home. So that's mostly what we do in between is kind of prepare for the teams that are coming um, via local government, my own team here, social workers, contractors. Um, and then when the teams come, we just, we just go and serve. We do roofing, we... You know, if they need a couch, if they need a bed, if they need a door with a lock, we want to not just give them a roof, but give them dignity that they feel good about the home that they're living in, that they can raise their kids, um, that it's a home that they can, you know, that they can stay in during the next storm. Because that's another thing, right? We we know they're getting worse. Uh, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's not, <laughs> that should be a debate for either side. The storms are getting worse. Nobody has ever seen anything like Maria. Um, it was long and, and it was brutal and the winds were crazy and the amount of rain that came. And unfortunately there's likelihood that there's more coming. So we need to be prepared and, and building homes that are safe and secure that can withstand another storm. So doing a lot of that work and we always take time to just pray with people to sit with them to sing some songs and to sometimes we're just hugging people and crying Mm. for an hour you know just like hearing their stories and 
some of the team are, you know, up on the roof, building the roof, and half of the other team are drinking coffee and crying with the people that we're helping. And, you know, we like to prioritize that, take time with the families that we're serving and just, you know, share those stories. You know, uh, my my history with Puerto Rico, I, I always take a little more uh, in depth and special attention to what's going on. I, mm. But but I but I think sadly so the average American hasn't been following it close enough to know um, the level of devastation and what's been yeah. going on in Puerto Rico. Because as you said, <clears throat> prior to the hurricanes, there was mm. a really really really, and I'm assuming still is bad. Economic, the country itself uh, was almost in bankruptcy. And can you can you explain and give people just maybe in a and I'm sure you do this a lot, but maybe in a, sure. a short form, mm. what was going on in you know the schools that were closed, the colleges, yeah. and then what yeah. the hurricane did to to just magnifying that, just to put it in perspective yeah. for people. Yeah. So they, that's it. We we are in incredible debt. You know, the, there was an element of talking about Greece, you know, a couple of years back about their incredible debt. Puerto Rico had a debt that was equal, if not a bit worse than the debt that Greece was in. Um, so there was an element of austerity measures and closing public schools, public hospitals, lots of public services and sports programs. And so crime went up. Um, police officers are leaving the island because they're not getting paid. Um, a lot of our public services are are, are deteriorating. Um, a humongous housing crisis, property value, you know, going down. It just how many public crazy. how many public schools were closed on the island? Oh, more than two hundred. Um, I mean, I can't imagine two hundred public schools just closed down. Closing down and then having to merge with others, not having enough teachers, not having enough security. Um, and not enough public hospitals, um, issues with the roads. I mean, just a combination of factors. And then, of course, the hurricane comes and just increases that for everybody. So um, it, it's been painful. It's been hard. There's people that feel stuck. That's the, the one of the main things is people that are like, yeah, we were like this two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, and it's not getting any better. And now it's even slower because of what happened to the storm and, and the government's in crisis and so, yeah, there, there's, there's an element of desperation, of hopelessness, um, which also invites a, an opportunity for grace and love and joy and creativity and new farms rising and, and new businesses coming up. But it's been really hard to push through. And for so many families that we've been helping um, and, and the Puerto Rican spirit being more inclined to be joy and fun and parties, feeling that, you know, that that that's been lost in a way. Um, but again, the invitation for people to get together and to work hard and to do something new and, and for the gospel. And that's why I moved here because I just, the gospel is good news to the poor. And we can have a million theological discussions about what that actually means, what the text actually says or what it means spiritually is good news to the poor. So I'm finding a lot of poor people and good news to them is a new roof. And good news to them is a group of people coming and helping them and not charging them a cent and bringing them food and music and love and, and doors and mattresses, you know. So that's what we're trying to do. And hopefully we'll do that for, you know, as long as it takes. That's beautiful. Um, how can people uh, who want to know more, first of all, about you and your work mm. and your ministry tap into that? And then how can they help you with what you're doing mm. in Puerto Rico? Yeah. So happy NPO, NPO for nonprofit organization.com. Happy NPO. Um, that's, I, I would say that's the mothership because from there you can go to our store, to our blog. 
Um, but for people that want to give, I, I don't feel, I used to feel bad about asking for money because we were trying to buy a $100,000 um, sound system. I don't feel bad at all now asking, we need money, we need funds so we can, and, and the funds, we're trying to be strategic about it. We hire local workers, right? So we're trying to help the local economy. We only buy from local hardware stores to help the local economy. The money that comes in stays in Puerto Rico. The people that are coming from the state, from Canada, they're coming to volunteer. They pay their own way, and we eat at local restaurants. We enjoy the local, you know, the local arts and crafts, etc. So the money that comes into the Happy Nonprofit is used in Puerto Rico for Puerto Rico. Um, and then, of course, for those that want to actually come, we are planning teams uh, again all the time and we're hoping to move to two teams a month now that my team has been growing here locally um, by the fall that we can host you so happy mpo you can see the work that we're doing sign up give pray etc we'll take anything honestly we'll take it all that's beautiful that's beautiful and before we wrap up i, I have two questions for you is what what do you feel or believe is happening and in in taking place in the world in the church in mm. those of us who are searching and transforming and trying to grow in our journey of faith what what do you think is is happening is there something that's a concerted uh happening that's going on are we all on our own individual journeys I mean, I have my own opinions on that, but I'd love to hear from you. Just like, Mm. what do you sense as you talk to people, whether it's myself or others Mm. in the States, all over the world, in Puerto Rico, what do you sense is going on? Mm. I, I, the first thing to say would be to validate people's frustrations and disappointment. Mm. And uh, that frustration is an invitation that it is okay to be done with the old way. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with people that are done. Um, to do that with grace, of course. It's not like we're done with those people and they don't matter anymore. But there is something new that's happening. And the problem with something new, you know, Jesus talked about the new wineskin. The new wine needs a new wineskin. Is that new things, really new things, you don't know what they look like. You know, the new Avengers movie is not until you see it that you really know right. what it looks like and to fully experience it. So something new demands trust mm. um, and it demands us being willing to to just be done with the old wineskin. Thank you for the wine. Thank you for the old wineskin. But so to validate those frustrations, those disappointments, um, there's so many people, I mean, can, can, I, I can say it's a daily conversation and I wouldn't be exaggerating. I'm done with church. I don't want to go to Sunday anymore. I don't even know what to do. So many of the people that come to Puerto Rico to serve, it's this is like their religious experience for the year, you know? And so I'm finding myself half of the time like, yeah, let's be done with it and let's move forward. Let's start something new. And the, the other half is like, man, there's still that beautiful thing about gathering and community and family, right? I still have that in me. Um, so I think it's a journey for different people. There are people that are called and the invitation is to honor where you're at because they're moving in the right direction. Maybe it's a bit slower than you want it, uh, but the things are changing and it's time to, you know, kind of be faithful to that. And there's for other people, it's time to run for your life, to get out of those spaces and to dream of new spaces that belong to you and to your friends and for people that are in frustration and disappointment to give that to Jesus and dream of something new um, and give yourself space to dream of those things. So 
I, I wish it was kind of like a, a, a one shoe fits all. I, there isn't because there are things, beautiful things that are happening. Again, I'm, most of the teams that are coming are churches that want to help, that want to be involved, that want to be part of this new thing. Um, so it's not like we're going to discredit all. And yet there's other people that they just really need to take a break from what they've known always to, to, be, to give them space to dream of something new. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we will be that new thing. So many people are like, when are you going to plant the church? I'm like... I, I planted a church thinking that we would be missional, and then the only mission was Sunday morning. Maybe I do want to do the missional part first, and maybe we'll plant a church based on people that want to do this forever. I don't want this to be a seasonal thing. I want this to be what we do. So, I don't know. I, does that that's make good. any sense? Yeah, no, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's beautiful. And the last question that I, that I would ask uh, as we wrap up is, what do you want people here in the mainland states to to know about the people of Puerto Rico? Because my heart has always been, you know, mm. Puerto Rico continually from the very beginning has gotten, you know, the wrong end of the deal constantly. Mm. It's like mm-hmm. you're Americans, but you're not Americans. You mm. have to go to war, but you don't get mm-hmm. a, a fair vote. Mm-hmm. You don't get the benefits of, uh, of everything that the state gets and. All of these things, what, what is it? And, you know, you're not immigrants, but you are immigrants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you want people to know about the people of Puerto Rico? Thank you for asking that question. Even just you asking um, means a lot. Um, yeah, we, we, we live in that incredible tension. We, we are Latinos in culture, right? We, we speak Spanish. We, um, our music, our art. Our experience, as you're saying, even though we're not officially immigrants in the continental U.S., we feel like immigrants. Our experience is an immigrant experience. Um, I think the invitation for Puerto Ricans, exactly, just us Puerto Ricans, because we are American citizens and because we are fully Latinos, I think we are a gift to what God is doing in America uh, we know that the Latino population is going to keep growing, um, exponentially growing in the States. And I think Puerto Ricans have a place in the story of America that is really significant. And I know it's uh, – I'll get charismatic here. I think there's a there's a prophetic element of somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda doing Hamilton, this Puerto Rican kid writing the story right. of America in, in hip-hop language, right? Like we are so able to bring – It's like the story of white America together written by a Puerto Rican with the music of African America. Right. And and bring it together in a way that it's it's so culturally relevant and necessary. And somebody like um, Alexandra Cortez, you know, the, the congressman from New York, whether you agree with her or not, there's this 29 year old Puerto Rican that has captivated people and is drawing so much attention. I think we have as as a people, Puerto Ricans. We have an opportunity to be that kind of in-between voice that can bring people together that would have never come together. Um, and I, I think that's a beautiful thing. And I, hopefully people will welcome that into their churches, into their families, into their communities um, so that we can be part of that, that new thing that God is doing in the States. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for your time, and thank you for taking a few minutes to tell us what's going on there. And uh, people want to buy your books. If people want to catch up with you, they can go to happynpo.org. Uh, they can go to happy.com. Yeah. I'm sorry, dot com. No, happy. you're good. Happynpo.com. That's yeah, and go. from there, they can be a jumping off point for, yeah. for everything yeah. else, right? Thank you. That's it. Carlos, thanks, man. And um, thanks, I hope to Tom. get down to see you soon. That would be awesome. You're always welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.